So 1 Samuel, this is kind of an interesting book for us because um, I was thinking about this this morning. There are so many layers in this. You look at an Old Testament book like 1 Samuel and you got so much going on because there's themes that are woven in and out. There's characters, there's you know plots, there's all, all kinds of stuff. And um, it's always difficult to know exactly how to approach it. You could preach through a book like 1 Samuel three or four times and focus on something different every time. And so we're going to kind of do a mix as we go, go through this. There'll be some look at some characters like this morning. They'll be um, you know, looking at themes that are present, theological themes, uh, and God himself as a character. They'll be looking, we'll be looking at issues of sin and redemption and righteousness and, and whatnot. So um, it should be a good study for us here. Let's get just some uh, basic background information out of the way first. First and second Samuel were actually one book originally. And they were broken apart into two books. And so really, First and Second Samuel is one long historical account. Uh, the author is unknown. It's named First and Second Samuel. Jewish tradition ascribes the authorship to Samuel, but it's kind of doubtful because he actually dies in First Samuel 25. It's kind of hard to finish the book when you're dead. Um, can't write a second one. And so it probably was not written by Samuel. Um, all evidence seems to suggest that it was probably written at some time during the divided kingdom because in the books it refers to Judah and Israel as two separate entities. But we know that that did not happen until we're into the divided kingdom after Solomon. So it was probably written sometime um, during that divided kingdom. The events of the book actually fit between the book of Judges that we studied and then um, the book of First Kings. And again, it's kind of a, it's an Old Testament historical narrative. It describes the events that take place over a 135-year period that goes from really the end of the period of Judges where Israel was 12 tribes governed by individual judges. It covers that period from moving from that over 135 years into, the, into basically the... Um, a kingdom, if you will, where you have a king ruling over Israel, and it actually takes us up and up to about Solomon. So, um, again, a kind of a historical narrative that shows us about that transition. Now, what's interesting about that is, you'll see as we go through the book, um, there's some sin involved where Israel cries for a king. They want a king. They're not satisfied with God being their king. Um, and so it's the transition from going from sort of, in some respects, rejecting God's authority and leadership over them into a kingdom where they have an earthly king. But that was something also God provided for and predicted. You know, So it's kind of an interesting thing how that's going to fit together for us because it's sort of God chastises Israel for crying for a king, but at the same token he put stipulations in the law under Moses describing how to behave when you have a king. So um, just again kind of looks at God's sovereignty and all of that. 1 Samuel actually covers half of this history. It's the time from Samuel's birth um, into Saul's reign, up to about King David. So it's the first half of that. Now, it's a difficult time in Israel at this point. You remember the study of uh, the book of Judges that we went through. Um, As we move through each one of those judges, um, Israel was on this sort of downward spiral. You know, you hear the statement of, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. With Israel, it was two steps forward, three steps back. And each time they got another judge, that judge was maybe a little more corrupt and a little less spiritual, a little less godly. And you remember there was a statement that was used, um, especially at the end of the book of Judges, but it was repeated elsewhere. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it was kind of a difficult time in, in Israel's history as we went through the book of Judges because of their own sin. Um, their involvement in the land with the, the other gods and the Canaanite um, culture and whatnot. 
worshiping at the high places, but also because these judges weren't very good judges. Something else that was happening at this time was the priesthood had also become quite corrupt. We won't look at this now, but in 2 Samuel 2, um, it talks about how corrupt the priests had become in Israel as well, which kind of makes sense considering they were worshiping Baal and up at the high places and everything else. And so we had these corrupt or these less than ideal judges that were supposed to rule Israel's tribes. We had priests that had been corrupt and involved themselves with all kinds of um, religious practices that were offensive to God. They also were sort of financially corrupt, and we'll see that in our study of 1 Samuel, in the way that they treated people, some of the behavior of the priests. They were fleecing the flock, if you will. Something else that was happening is they were at war with the Philistines. The Philistine army was much larger, more powerful than they were, and they were a constant threat to Israel. So Israel is under a tremendous amount of pressure at this point, spiritually, with their leadership, um, with the um, Philistine army bearing down on them. And so it's at this time that God actually sort of reaches out to Israel in mercy and compassion and sends them another judge. And that's really the way that we have to see this. God did not have to do this, but he loves Israel, his people, and he refused to abandon Israel. And so he sends them at this time probably one of the greatest judges in their history, and that's Samuel. But what's interesting about this book and this is one of the reasons I wanted you to read ahead in this, it's not really a book about Samuel. And in some respects, that's a little bit disappointing because Samuel's a pretty amazing individual. But the book's really not about Samuel. There's not a whole lot of content specifically related to Samuel. There's some, but there's a lot more related to Saul and David. Um, so it's not so much about Samuel as it is what God does with Samuel. But he gives to the Israelites a pretty amazing gift in Samuel, because Samuel had an impact. And so we're going to look at um, chapter 1 today. We're going to look at the birth of Samuel, but it's primarily really a story more about Samuel's mom, Hannah. So we're going to go ahead and do that. Let's go ahead and turn to um, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll read the first eight verses. We're going to look at what I'm going to refer to here as Hannah's plight. Now there was a certain man from Amathiah Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. Those are some good names, huh? He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. That's where the temple was at this point, or the, the tabernacle. And the two and his uh, or he had two sons, Eli, I'm sorry, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions, Penina, his wife, and to her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So we have this woman Hannah, and she's kind of in dire straits. She had two problems. 
The first problem is that she was barren. Now, the problem with that is, in the ancient Near East culture, um, a woman's primary role was to bear children for her husband. And when you couldn't do that, um, there was shame. You were ridiculed. You were mocked. Because if that was your primary role, and you couldn't do it, then you brought shame upon your husband. Now, I'm not going to judge that or say that's right or wrong, but that's the way it was. And so we have this woman, Hannah, who couldn't provide children to her husband. Now, back in those days, didn't generally just have one child or two children. Oftentimes had very, very many. We have stories of the Bible with 12 and 13 and 14 kids. We also have stories of 60, 70, 80 kids sometimes. Um, it was an important role for a wife to provide children to her husband, and Hannah couldn't do that. Now, monogamy, just having a single wife, was actually the norm in the ancient Near East, kind of like it is here. But that doesn't mean that they didn't marry additional women. We do have examples of that, even King David and others. Um, that was a violation of God's law. But even in the ancient Near East, outside of Israel, having just one wife was the norm. However, their legal contracts, their marriage contracts, did provide for a husband to marry another woman when his first wife couldn't provide children. And the reason was, he was supposed to have children. And so we have this man, Elkanah, who goes out and he marries a second woman. Now, the reason we know that Hannah was probably his first wife is because she's mentioned first. That was the author's intent. And so it appears that what Elkanah did was because Hannah could not produce children for him, he went and he married another woman, primarily for the purpose of providing offspring to him. And that was her second problem. Because this rival, this woman, could provide children. In fact, she was quite uh, the fertile myrtle, if you will. It refers in verse 4 to all of her sons and daughters. Um, I think there's, there's something else here. We always have to look at writers in, in Hebrew. Um, the Hebrew language is very, very poetic. And um, partly for that reason, as they write, even narrative, they are, there's things they do with the text, text, little clues here and there. And I would suspect that the reason that um, Elkanah, in verse 8, says, Am I not better to you than ten sons? Is probably because he had at least ten sons from his second wife. And so we have this rival of Hannah's, this fertile myrtle that's providing all of these children for her husband, and she doesn't let it rest there. What she does is she mocks and she mistreats Hannah. You can maybe see why. It says in the text that um, Elkanah loved Hannah. He gave her a double portion. She was his first wife, his first love. So Penina probably understood that she was there primarily to produce children. Maybe she was missing the love of her husband. Whatever the reason may be, she was irritated and she provoked and prodded and made comments about Hannah to the point where it says that Hannah wept bitterly in verse 10. She refers to her plight as an affliction in verse 11. That's the same word that refers to poverty. She saw herself as poor because she couldn't produce children. Now what makes this rather interesting is it wasn't some biological condition necessarily. Why was she barren? Do you remember what the text said? It said the Lord closed her womb. There was a purpose 
in this, and we'll see that in just a minute. But we have this woman, Hannah. She has this plight. She's facing this torment and this taunting year after year. In fact, it says that this happened year after year when they went up to the house of the Lord. Penina would provoke her. And so this has been a long period of time. How, how, how long would it take for her to, for Penina to produce at least ten sons and maybe an equal number of daughters? And we're talking years and years. And so that's what Hannah faced year after, probably at least a decade or two of this torment. And so she's a broken woman in some respects. Like I said, weeping bitterly, calling it her affliction, her poverty. What's the uh, lesson in this for us? Why would the Lord start with something like this? You know, it's hard sometimes to draw out principles in this, but one thing that I look at when I see this is, you know, Hannah is in a situation where she didn't get what she wanted, right? You know, life is difficult sometimes. Sometimes it just doesn't work out the way that we want, you know? Um, And we have to face that. And Hannah, as a apparently godly individual, we're going to see that with her, she was quite striking in her... Um, in her love for the Lord and in her behavior towards the Lord. She certainly didn't deserve this. There's no indication God was punishing her. If anything, she's a godly, godly young woman. In fact, her husband, as best we can tell, is quite a godly man as well. We can't hold it against him for marrying another woman because, again, that was just natural and normal in the culture and society. Even we see that again with David and others. doesn't excuse the sin, but he was a righteous man. So certainly we can't say that she was being punished. But she was facing difficulty. James reminds us in the first chapter of James that we face difficulties and trials, and that God has purpose in that. So I think one of the principles we draw from this is that just because we love the Lord, or just because we we, we know Jesus, just because we love the Lord or whatever, does not necessarily mean that everything's going to be rosy, everything's going to go as planned. It certainly wasn't going that way for Hannah. But the other thing we see in this is that there's divine purpose in it, and we'll see that as we walk through this. Oftentimes, the struggle and the suffering that we face has a divine purpose. Now, we don't always know what that is. Okay, We'd love to. You know how many of you have been in that situation where you're like, what does God want to teach me in this? And you, you've got to see some specific reason if you can't. And it's tough sometimes. Well, we don't really know why God did this. The text, to be real honest, we're never told why God had closed her womb. Just that he had. doesn't tell us why. So I think that, again, the lesson for us is that sometimes we just don't get what we want. Sometimes the life just doesn't work out the way that we wish it would or hope it would, but it doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It doesn't mean that God is not there looking out for us. In this case, there was a divine purpose to it. And I think we have to realize that in our own lives, God does not just do things out there willy-nilly. There's always a divine purpose. We may know what it is. Sometimes we may not know what it is. But we have to trust that there always is some divine purpose. And again, as James reminds us, at a minimum, it's simply to teach us endurance and our relationship with Christ. So, let's go ahead and move on. I'm going to look at uh, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to refer to this as Hannah's petition, because the trouble she was facing caused her to do something, and it's a good lesson for us. Verses 9 through 11, it says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, 
but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. So this difficulty drives Hannah to do two things. The first one is that she prays. You see, she goes to the temple. It says that she is greatly distressed in verse 10. So she prayed to the Lord, and during this time she wept. But she didn't just cry. It says she wept bitterly. How many of you have ever been in a position like that? There's no simple prayer here. It's about as earnest and desperate as somebody can get. Now, I have to believe that this probably wasn't the first time she had done this. She probably had, after one or two decades, finally went, you know, Lord, I've had this, so I think it's time now to pray. This was probably, the text doesn't tell us, but the fact that we find her in the temple here, probably it's something she had done year after year. Because it says that every year she would go up and every year she would be provoked by her rival. I would imagine she found herself in the temple oftentimes with this exact same prayer. Which might explain one reason why it's such an emotional thing for her. Why she is weeping bitterly. Why she is greatly distressed. Maybe the Lord wasn't going to answer her prayer. How many of you have been in a position where you've prayed for something and prayed for something and prayed for something and you kind of wonder if God's hearing your prayer? So she was there. So the first thing she does is pray. The second thing she does is she makes a vow. That's verse 11. It says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son. There are three phrases she uses here that indicates that she understood full well that having a child, specifically a son, would require an act of God's divine mercy. She first uses the phrase, look on. She then uses the phrase, remember me. And then lastly, she uses the third phrase, whoops, she uses the third phrase, which is do not forget. See what those all kind of have in common? It's God looking upon me, not remember, remembering, and not forgetting. She understood that in order for her plight to be overcome, it was going to require an act of God. That's you know, understandable, she's there praying. But she does something remarkable in this promise. She promises, or in this vow, she promises to give back to the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 11. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So the promise here is pretty remarkable because of what she's willing to do. Her statement of no razor coming onto his head probably means that she was committing him as a Nazarene. A Nazarene, um, a Nazarite vow was something an individual would make where they would go to the temple and they would vow themselves to service at the temple for a set period of time. And then when that set period of time was done, they were released from that vow. But it was always a temporary thing. In this case, you notice this is no temporary thing because she says all the days of his life. So she was basically taking and committing her son back to service at the temple. Back to God's service for all the days of his life. Now think about that for a moment. For years and years and years she desired to have a son and couldn't have a son. But when she makes this vow, she says, just give me a son and I'll give him back to you. Giving up the very thing that God had given to you, that's a pretty significant thing. She's promising to give up her child. And you know in the text, we'll see this a little bit later, she only got to see him probably one time a year. 
And it was when she went up to the temple to make the yearly sacrifice. She would make him a little robe for his duties. But that's the only time she probably saw him. I can't imagine for a moment how heart-wrenching that might be. It's not like she had ten other sons. I'll just give up one for... Not that that would be easy. Depending on the kid. But desperately seeking to have a son and yet willing to give that son back up to the Lord. I can't imagine how gut-wrenching that would be, and yet that's what she's willing to do. What's the lesson for us? You know, when we look at Elkanah, Elkanah has this issue. He can't have kids, and so he chooses a human solution. Has another wife to produce the kids. Hannah doesn't have that option, does she? Hannah can't find a human solution to her problem. You know, and today... We have other options when it comes to, you know, trying to do fertility treatments or other things. You know, there's things we can try that, you know, with God's blessing, maybe will work. But they don't always work. Hannah didn't even have that option back then. She had no option other than trusting and relying on God. What about us? Do you ever find yourself in a spot where there's nothing you can do from a human perspective. Your only hope is to wait and to trust on the Lord to do something. Sometimes we don't like being there, do we? But that's the only thing Hannah could do. She had to simply rely and trust and wait on Him. That's really at the heart of our Christian walk, isn't it? That's where God wants us to be. It's funny, when Israel had everything they needed, they got fat and happy, and look at what happened to them. I wonder sometimes when we look at the Christian church in America here, I'm going to use a phrase that maybe won't make you comfortable, but in many respects it's pathetic. When you look at what passes as Christianity today, we have no clue what it means to suffer. We have no clue what it means to be persecuted. Now we face persecution. Did you hear what's happening recently now in China? China's always been, you know, known to persecute Christians. But for the most part, you can still be a Christian in China. Okay, there's the state-sponsored, sanctioned churches, which is the Catholic church that's run by China. Even, even the Catholic bishops in China are not appointed by, Catholic, by, the, by the Vatican. They're appointed by the Chinese government. Okay, but you can still at least go into a Catholic church and still have the service there. And then there's the official Protestant church. There's a couple of others. There's, there's Islam and some others. But then there was always the sort of side church, You know, the Catholic Church also has another branch that they appoint their own bishops. And China has kind of left them apart, or left them alone for for the most part, you know. Well, China now is clamping down on that. In fact, they just banned the sale of Bibles. You cannot go to like like Amazon or others in China and order a Bible. They're gone. Because China now is clamping down on that. And um, in many respects, there's some stuff I've read recently where they're trying to actually... um, produce their own versions of the Bible now that are more favorable to communism. And there will be an official Chinese version of the New Testament sponsored by the government. Okay, um, We don't face that here yet. Time may come. So I don't want to downplay the persecution that Christians do face here, but we really don't have a clue what it's like in the rest of the world in a place like North Korea, probably one of the most brutal places for Christians to be. Okay? Um, When we get everything we want all the time and things are just easy, 
I think our faith struggles sometimes. And so in many respects, we need those difficult times because it's where we fall back and rely upon God. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to be up there making our lives miserable because of that, because he loves to bless us. And he did that with Israel. It's just that Israel didn't respond properly half the time. They got fat, happy, and lazy. And that happens here with the church in some respects, too. So I think the lesson here with Hannah for us is we look at her and we think she had no other hope but to just turn to God and look at the promise she made, the faith that that must have required. That's the way our faith should be, I think. You know? Let's look at verses 12 through 18. I'm going to call this Hannah's piety. Verses 12 through 18. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought that she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, in James 4.8, we read this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I believe that's what we see here with Hannah. She's in the temple. She goes to the temple because that's where God could be found. She begins to pray. It says we find her praying in her heart with her lips moving, but no words coming out. It says that she's oppressed in spirit. It says she's pouring out her soul, her very soul to the Lord God. It says she's praying out of her great concern and provocation. So she asks the Lord for a blessing. She asked the Lord's priest for a blessing. I think what really stands out for me in this passage is what we see at the very end of it. Look at verse 18 again. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Notice when she got there, she wasn't eating. Her husband was concerned because he's trying to give her a double portion, and she's just picking at the food. She couldn't eat, she was distressed. But here it says that she gets up, she goes away, she eats, and says her face is no longer sad. Now, did her circumstances change? No. She still has no son. And there was no promise here that she, I mean, God didn't give her this deep, booming bass voice and say, you've got your son. So she, yay, she walked. Nothing had changed at this point yet. And yet her countenance had changed. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think that's what we see here, and I think that's a lesson for us in this. I think the reason that Hannah went away with her spirits lifted, was because she had sat in the presence of God and the peace of God had done a work in her heart. Have you ever been in a situation like that yourself where you're distressed, you're having a difficulty and don't know what to do? So you spend some time praying and maybe find that your spirits are lifted even though the circumstances haven't quite changed yet? Yeah, because that's the way God works. That's more a testimony to God than it is Hannah in many respects. 
Because Hannah couldn't manufacture that kind of peace. And to be real frank, we can't either. There's no way we can manufacture that, which is why God does it. But again, Philippians tells us that we first have to go with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Which means that when we face difficulties like Hannah was facing, if we want the peace, if we want um, that overwhelming sense of things are going to be okay, not knowing if the circumstances are going to be changed, the only place that peace is going to come from is God. Because he will guard our hearts and minds. But it requires that we go to him with prayer and petition and thanksgiving. You know, I have been blessed tremendously um, by Jennifer's posts regarding Walker. I mean, they've gotten great news, but their, their um, perspective from day one has been to bless God and to be blessed by God through this. Now, I'm thrilled by the fact that God is, appears to be doing everything we had hoped he would do with Walker and healing his cancer and moving him forward. Um, but I get every impression from them that their rejoicing is not as much over that as it is just seeing God work and what God has done, the number of opportunities he's provided, the witness that he has provided through Walker with the doctors and the nurses and the staff and the other people. Their peace has come from one place, and it's because of crying out to the Lord. And he has done exactly what he promised he would do, which is to guard their hearts and minds. And if you've ever been in a place like that, then you know what that is. You know, we've had a few instances in our life where we've been challenged. You know, one of them was Kimberly in the hospital. I think I've shared this. You know, we, we were told Kimberly had cancer, and it was a very deadly form of cancer without much hope for um, healing. About 80 to 90% of kids that had it die from it. That's what we were told. And in the end, a week later, we found out it was all benign. But I remember something. That first night, man, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I cried all night long before we were able to go to Children's Hospital. We, got, we were told the news we had to go to Children's Hospital. And I cried all night long. And I made a choice on how I was going to handle that. And I began to send out emails um, talking about God's grace and his mercy and how he would guard our hearts. And Man, I tell you, I, I've never felt the kind of peace I felt that week. Thinking that I may lose my daughter, and yet at the same time, this overwhelming sense of peace and comfort and what's interesting about that is it wasn't, I didn't do that simply because I was mature. I had had a friend of mine, Steve knows him, Phil Huey, whose daughter had died suddenly from, or actually was in the hospital immediately because of um, an asthma attack. And he had sent out these emails every day as they were watching her and she ultimately died. Um, I was blown away by what he was sharing in his emails and the goodness of God and the grace. And he actually preached her funeral. Um, and it was a short time afterwards that this stuff happened with Kimberly. And I thought, I was so encouraged by Phil and how God had worked with Phil that I was encouraged to do the same thing myself. Just drop to my knees, trust that the Lord would provide the peace to be able to get through the difficult time. And he did. And like I said, in our case, it ended up okay in the end. But it was neat to see God work. And that's exactly what we see with Hannah here. Let's move on. I'll look at Hannah's provision. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20. says, Then they, which would be Hannah and her family, arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord 
remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. I love the way that this this is worded here. It doesn't say that Hannah went home and she and her husband had a baby. It doesn't say Hannah got pregnant. What does it say? What does the text say? The Lord remembered. What do you think the author is trying to tell us? This is all about the Lord remembering Hannah. She had said, remember me, don't forget me. Remember, divine act. This wasn't just the fact that, you know, I have a friend of mine, in fact, Steve and I know him, Dave Johnson. They had trouble having a child for years, I think seven or eight years. So they um, adopted from Brazil. I think they had five, four of their own children after that. It's like the floodgates opened up in their case. And we kind of joke about that. Well, the stress and the tension, you know, that's not what it's about. God was good, you know. Um, But what's interesting here is that there's absolutely no way to get by the fact that this was the Lord's blessing upon Hannah at this point. Not something she earned. It was just God remembered her. Doesn't always work out that way. In this case, it did for Hannah. But the author just wants us to be clear here that this was a divine act of God's mercy. But not just for Hannah as much as it was Israel. Remember, this is God doing this for Israel. This was all about God delivering to Israel Samuel as their really last good judge, if you will. So the Lord remembered her. She named the boy Samuel, it says, which means name of God. But what's interesting about this, and you can't see this unless you could really do it in the Hebrew, but the name Samuel means name of God, but when you say it, when you actually pronounce it, it sounds like heard of God. Notice that the English text there says, because I have asked him of the Lord. So it's interesting, this little word play. Words in the Old Testament are significant. God uses them to give us all kinds of stuff. And so you have this word that means named of God, but also when you say it, heard of God. That she had been heard of God, and God provided her with a son. So the lesson for us in this, um, I think, is primarily this. Hannah not only experienced God's mercy and grace But she recognized that it was exactly that, God's mercy and grace. I think sometimes we get sort of callous to this. In other words, we just look at our lives and things happen and we just, we don't sit back and say, wow, this was a direct act of God. Whatever it is, it's just happenstance. You know, we get a promotion at work and it's because of our hard work, you know, or whatever it is. She gave credit where credit was due. Now, in her case, it was pretty radical, you know. I mean, years of not being able to have a child, Um, asking God for a child, and he answers that prayer. But um, I think we sometimes forget God's daily provision in our lives. I think we need to do more of that. I do. Um, We don't always see God working because we don't look. We don't recognize. And yet everything that we have is ultimately a result of what he's done for us. Uh, We don't deserve anything. um, But he does an awful lot for us. So I think we should be inclined to recognize those things that God does as his grace and his mercy in our lives. Just like Hannah did here. She didn't take credit for herself. Um, She gave it completely to God, even named her son after that. Let's go on to to Hannah's promise. 
Look at verses 21 through 23. Then the man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice, we're talking a year later now, and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Basically what we have here is weaning generally, um, you breastfeed your children until they're about three or four years old in the Old Testament. And so she's basically asking for that, that she wouldn't, um, deliver Samuel to the temple until he had been completely weaned, which again is going to probably be three or four years. Now, what's kind of interesting about this, um, it's probably a pretty significant time of bonding as well, you would think. You spend the first three or four years with your child, that whole time knowing that ultimately in the end, you're going to be giving him up. So when we think about what we did a few minutes ago, which was this promise, give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Add to that three to four years now with your child. How much more difficult might that be at that point, if you can even, I mean, it'd be difficult, period. But this three or four year period of weaning this child, knowing that ultimately you would be presenting this child to the Lord at the temple and now only able to visit once a year. You can imagine again how that would be. I think a lesson for us as we look at this is we see Hannah as somebody who took her vow to the Lord seriously. Now you could actually redeem a vow. The Old Testament provided if you made a vow to the Lord you could purchase it back in some respects. So Hannah could have said, you know what? I kind of want to keep Samuel now. Could have gone to the temple or the tabernacle in Shiloh, paid a fee if you will, made a sacrifice and redeemed the vow and kept Samuel to herself. It was all permitted by the law. There would have been no sin in doing that. But she didn't do that. She had promised God that she would deliver her son to his temple for his service. And she was absolutely intent on doing that. There was no backing out. So we find that the Lord actually is first and foremost in her mind here. She had promised him something. She was going to fulfill it. You know, it's interesting. Um, Luke chapter 14, Jesus warned his followers that there's a cost to discipleship and that they should weigh that cost before deciding to become his disciples. The Old Testament warns us about taking vows because if you take a vow and you don't fulfill it, there's consequences. So the rule was, don't make a vow. Just don't make a vow. Avoid it. But if you do, you're obligated to fulfill it or to redeem it. Jesus has that same basic philosophy when it comes to discipleship. He told him, he said, look, don't just say the prayer and come to me. You better consider the cost. There's cost for discipleship. When we commit our lives to Christ, when we accept the gospel, God's gift of salvation, in essence, we're promising to live our lives in accordance with the gospel. We already covered this in both Ephesians and, and uh, Romans, where we're told that our lives are supposed to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. We see that in Hannah here. You know, she was given everything she had at this point. The son was it. And that's what she's willing to give. She took her relationship with the Lord that seriously. She had made a vow. She's going to fulfill the vow to him. 
no matter what the personal cost was to her. As disciples, some disciples are asked to give up their lives. We saw that with the apostles in the first century. There's a cost. And for us here today, we may not have the same cost, but would you agree that being a Christian in even the United States here, that there's a cost? Yeah, getting a little more complicated, but sometimes we get ridiculed or made fun of or people look at us funny. Sometimes we give up certain things to do certain things. I think about you know, families that make certain sacrifices to, to, to raise their family and whatnot because of our Christian values, things we do and don't do. Um, Hannah was somebody who was committed to that. I wish we had more information on Hannah because after we're through chapter 2, she sort of disappears a little bit. But uh, boy, she'd be a great character study just in herself and her relationship with God. Pretty remarkable woman. And so we see this promise here just reflects this commitment she had to fulfilling her vow to the Lord because of her love for the Lord, especially at great cost. And it makes me wonder sometimes what we're willing to give up with our relationship with Christ. Sometimes I wonder if we're willing to give up anything. Sometimes we want to be so in love with the world and have all the things the world wants. Sometimes we think that that's the blessings of being a Christian. You know, you get saved and everything should be great. God should just bless us. That's what we see in the health and wealth and prosperity movement, isn't it? You know, make your vow, give a thousand dollars, and God will give you ten thousand back. Sometimes I think we feel that way that God owes us instead of the other way around. And Hannah, I think, looked at this as God owed her nothing, but she owed him everything and was willing to fulfill her promise. Let's move on to verses 24 through 28. I'm going to refer to this as Hannah's presentation, if you will. Verses 24 through 28. Now when she had weaned him, she took him with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Although the child was young, probably again three or four years of age here. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So this is where Hannah now actually presents her vow to the Lord in fulfillment of her promise. Now there's some disagreement on the text here, and it's because the original Hebrew text, there's different, um, I'll call them traditions. Basically, the... Our Bible isn't just one thing. There isn't just one book of Samuel that we discovered one day. There's texts. And the texts in this particular passage, the Hebrew texts, don't exactly agree into what the text says, which is a very uncommon thing with the Scripture because 99.9% of our Bible, we know the exact text. This is one passage where we're not exactly sure. Some of the ancient texts say that um, she brought three bulls. One say one. They disagree a little bit on the the offerings that she brings here. But the one thing that we can agree on with this text is that her offering here that she makes is actually way above and beyond that was required by the law. Um, The amount of flour and wine that she brings, if she only brought one bowl, the amount of wine and flour she brings is about three times more than was expected. If she brought three bowls, the wine and the flour would match because it was basically bring one bowl, bring this much flour and wine to pay off your vow. Okay, So either the flour doesn't match or the bowls don't match. There's something here, but either way, 
She's going way above and beyond the Old Testament requirement, which again kind of gives us some insight into her and her thankfulness. So here she is bringing her son up, ready to present her son to the temple, knowing now she's going to have to leave and go back home without her son. But she's not doing it begrudgingly. She's not doing it with a depressed spirit. She's even brought extra offerings to bless God. She's going above and beyond, which means there's a certain amount of joy in what she's doing, a certain amount of affection for God. And when you look at what she does here, we would have to say that there's a number of other things that we find in this. It's an act of worship, for one. The second thing is that it's an act of thankfulness. And the third is that it's an act of dedication. So all of this, as we look at what she's doing, it's an act of worship, it's an act of thankfulness, and it's an act of dedication to the Lord. Imagine if we sort of um, saw ourselves that way. When we come to church on a Sunday morning, you know, um, do we look at that as an act of worship? Do we look at that as an act of dedication, an act of thankfulness? Um, Sometimes we do. Sometimes we (laughs) come because of the music, you know. Sometimes we come because of the, you know, the kids' programs, or sometimes we come because of all these things, and I'm not saying those are wrong, but when we come before God to worship, it's supposed to be more than that. And we look at Hannah here, again, she's bringing her child, and I can't get past it. she's bringing her child, she's going to be going home, there's going to probably be some tears as she walks out the door, as she leaves the temple, but boy, she's there to worship, and to thank God and to present gifts and offerings, and even goes above and beyond what's expected, gives more than what she had to give. I would almost expect it to be the other way around. I'd expect her to be walking in going, man, this is going to be a terrible day. I made this vow. Maybe it was a mistake. I don't know if I can do this. You know, she goes to the temple. She stops, can't go in the door. Maybe Elkanah's going to say, no, you have to do this, and maybe pushes her a little. But there's none of that at all. That's pretty remarkable. So we have this amazing presentation here. I think the lesson for us is to look at Hannah and to say, you know, she didn't do it begrudgingly. She went above and beyond. Um, That's the way our worship is supposed to be, is it not? Our whole relationship with Christ is supposed to be that way. Um, How many times do we do things begrudgingly as believers? Do it because we have to. God expects it. Even, you know... Giving financially, maybe, is one of those things where sometimes, you know, we struggle. Or whether it's doing things, giving of our time, giving of our talents, giving of our abilities, where it's done begrudgingly, or with a certain amount of reservation. I think those are all normal things. I think we all face that, don't we? You don't have to raise your hand. But if you're anything like me, yeah, I'll be frank. Um, And what's funny about that is that's nothing compared to what Hannah had to do. That is nothing compared to what Hannah had to do. She's this great example for us. As I said, I wish we had a whole book just on Hannah. Kind of reminds me of the book of Ruth, you know? You get this amazing character study. I wish we had that on Hannah here. What a, what a delight she, she must have been. Um, to be in the place that she was at where being ridiculed and mocked, and yet her faith in the Lord was strong. And we see that reflected all the way through the process, making this promise and, and following through on the promise. And then when she goes to fulfill that promise, does it with a certain amount of joy, 
a heart of worship, a heart of dedication, and a heart of thankfulness. This is a great example for us, isn't it? You know, I wonder sometimes what our greatest witness is, and I don't think it's when we go out with the four spiritual laws. I think it's when people see how we behave as Christians, how we handle adversity, how we handle difficult times. I think that the walkers have probably had the most significant ministry experience in their lives as a result of what they're going through right now. Would anybody agree with me on that? I mean, the opportunities, even what I talked with Hunter and he was explaining to me, he's like, you know, some of these people that he works with, you couldn't, you, you couldn't say squat. You couldn't open your mouth. You, know, you really couldn't get in. They weren't, and mostly because they weren't interested. Not because it'd be mean, like, don't, don't share that with me, but rather just not interested at all. But the opportunity he's had to just talk about the Lord, talk about what he's doing in his son's life. Um, he's like, nobody shuts him down for that. Doors are wide open, you know. People learn more about Christ from watching us as Christians handle <coughs> adversity and just live in our lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. When they see us go through a difficult time and they see us get mopey and depressed and just bitter and angry and upset and blaming God or whatever it is, that says one thing about the God we serve and about our faith, doesn't it? But when they see the peace of God going way beyond our understanding and seeing the peace that we might have or the thankfulness we might have or the contentment we might have, even though circumstances haven't changed, I think it makes people curious. How can you have the faith you have going through what you're going through? Don't you just get mad at God sometimes? That's what they expect. Don't you just want to turn your back on God? Isn't God supposed to answer all your prayers all the time? Just, you know, thought life was supposed to be good as a Christian. And our answer is, "Mm, no. But God is good. He's gracious. His peace. I think they learn more from watching that 